I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before Neo Tide fired four shots at the door, I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. In South Africa, 71 people are murdered every day. These are the stories of Africa's killers and criminals and what it takes to catch them. My name is Paul Llewellyn, I'm a journalist and a true crime filmmaker. And my co-host, as always, to discuss crime on the continent is Gerard Labaskachny, the former cop and current head of LNS Threat Management, who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murders and rape cases and he is our profiler please visit our youtube page and subscribe search profiler africa we're available on apple and google podcasts soundcloud and spotify simply search profiler please share your favorite link you can engage with us on our social media pages our twitter and instagram handle is at profiler africa please also join the group on facebook questions suggestions you know, we love them, so uh, please do get in touch. You can also email us on profilerafricainfo, or one word, at gmail.com. Um, we do put up stuff on the social media pages that are relevant to uh, some of our discussions, so do go and check it out. Hi, everybody. So, yeah, thanks for tuning in again today. And if, if you've been an avid listener to our podcast, you'll see that every now and then, we have a guest and I think it's something we Paul and I really want to do more often to just to kind of expose people to different things, different professions, different experiences, uh, etc. So today it is a great privilege to introduce Dr. Hestel van Staden, someone that I've known for sure 10 years, probably oh, at least 13. 12, 13 years. Mm. Uh, she's a senior forensic pathologist at the Houghton Department of Health at the Johannesburg Medical Legal Laboratory, which is essentially the forensic mortuary, if I can put it that way, in Bramfontein next to the, if you've ever been to the Constitutional Court, it's kind of right behind it. So uh, not the greatest area to be operating in, but I suppose you're close to your customers. Um, and besides that, um, I also have to point out, she always gets a bit uh, awkward when I do this, she's also the, the lead <laughs> character in a TV show called Autopsy, which is the Afrikaans word for autopsy. You might figure that one out. Um, and that is currently, it was on VIA, uh, but it is now on Showmax, which is that on-demand platform in South Africa. And it's essentially different stories of her cases she worked on as a forensic pathologist. So it's, it's Quincy without the drama, for those of you that are older in age like, like me. <laughs> Not go Google Quincy. Um, and besides that, also, she is... Oh, and sorry, that's also got subtitles in English, so you don't have to be Afrikaans to listen to Autopsy, to watch it. You can read the little words at the bottom of the page. Um, but she's Thanks also, for explaining what subtitles are. <laughs> also a budding author. Uh, I also have to point out that with my two books, she was the person who read every single chapter before I submitted it to the editors. So she was very helpful in, in me informing, uh, formulating Profiler Diaries 1 and 2 into what it is. So thank you for that. And very she kind. is currently uh, yeah, writing a book about her experiences as a forensic pathologist. So uh, welcome to the, to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And you guys are virtually neighbors. And we are virtually neighbors. Well, we, we won't are. say where, but we are no, virtually no, yeah. <laughs> I don't want anyone to know where you live, Jared. We dog sit for each other also. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, but I think perhaps first, before jumping into kind of how you got into the world of, of forensic pathology, because I think that's always interesting for people, not just to know about the profession, but kind of how the person got into it, because it's a strange profession for most people. And 
even me who had been to many autopsies think, why would somebody want to do this um, <laughs> uh, as a career every day? So, um, but first, what, what is forensic pathology? I think there's a lot of people who don't quite understand the role of forensic pathologist. It's different to how it is, say, in the United States. They have different systems. Yeah. Um, and perhaps just did, what is it? And I guess, how do you become one? And then we'll take it from there and get in a little bit how, about how you got into this career and some of the things you've worked on. So forensic pathology basically deals with unnatural death, which is defined in South African law. So if anybody dies and the death is regarded as unnatural, they require medico-legal post-mortem examination or autopsy, um, which is then conducted by either forensic pathologist or, because we are so few and far between, forensic medical officers. Mm. Um, so we are qualified doctors that then specialize for around four years and um, and work in the forensic pathology departments during that period and then you write your final exams before be becoming a forensic pathologist. Uh, obviously a lot more goes into it than that short description. Yes. Um, but unnatural deaths, I mean that's often a word that people don't quite gross and essentially I always like to look at it and you can obviously correct me if I'm wrong is someone died that we didn't expect to be who was going to be dying. So you know if you die if you're 80 and you die in your sleep that's not unexpected. No. And there's nothing on the scene like a gunshot wound to the head or, or an overdose tablets, yes. a bottle of tablets lying scattered on the floor, which could possibly indicate an overdose. Then that would probably be regarded as a, as a natural death. It's expected that that person, it's not a surprise. Correct. But this could be anything from the obviously gunshot wounds, stabbing, strangulation, but someone who was stung by a bunch of bees or someone who fell off the roof, uh, a car accident. So that's I mean, what other, what else would be the spectrum of kind of things that land up in the mortuary? Okay, you've already alluded to the unexpected. So this a sudden, unexpected, unexplained death. So mm. that would be, for example, the young person walking in the street and suddenly just collapses and dies. Um, at that stage, that death is regarded as unnatural until it has been investigated. Um, and after the post-mortem had been done, you could still find, oh, well, this, it was a lady and she had a ruptured ectopic pregnancy, for example. That would then become a natural death. But and then there's no police investigation thereafter into it. Yes, then the, the case is basically finalised right then. then. Um, other cases where deaths are regarded as unnatural is um, death due to the effect of a mechanical or chemical force. So that would, for example, be like you said, a motor vehicle accident or a gunshot wound or a stabbing, somebody that died in, a, um, in any kind of trauma-related situation. Drowning, would that be included? Drowning is included, yes. Um, the next death is then a death due to act of omission or commission, where there could be a criminal aspect related to that. Um, so that would be a death, for example, that would normally have, would have been regarded as natural, but now something has intervened. So, for example, the person that's diabetic and going into a coma, and they're sitting in hospital waiting to be, to be treated, but the doctors and the nursing staff are on strike, and now that person dies. That becomes an unnatural oh, death. Okay. And then the last one is um, deaths according to the Health Professions Amendment Act. So these are people that die due to re uh, procedure-related deaths. So the death of a person undergoing or as a result of a procedure or of which any part of the procedure is regarded as contributory. So be. you went in for a, an appendix op, a tonsillectomy, a hemorrhoidectomy. I'm just thinking of, yeah. Uh, and, and that's a very minor procedure. You don't expect that to be life threatening, and a person dies while under anesthetic. And that could be for a wide range of reasons, careless and not careless reasons, uh, on behalf of the medical practitioners. But it's not expected. That's automatic. So could this even be something like a person who's undergoing suturing? Like he cut himself, you know, cu cutting vegetables, and he goes to the hospital, and while he's being sutured, he, he kind of 
just drops down dead? It could be. The issue in, in that case is that we, when the law was changed, I think it was in 2008, we actually proposed that procedure be, be, be defined as surgical procedure for which um, anesthetic is required. Oh, okay. But this hasn't, has, hasn't actually happened. So, you know, procedure could be anything. Mm. Um, and it doesn't, Botox. Botox. Like he was saying, um, minor procedure. It doesn't need to be a minor procedure. Even in the person that's going in for major operation of which the survival rate could be 20%, but the family still regarded it as ne ne um, necessary. Such as a person going in, for example, elderly patient going in for an aneurysm repair. Mm. And we might have expected them not to, not to survive. Um, and that person dies on the table or even never wakes up after surgery, that also becomes an unnatural death. So that's the, the scope of, of, what, of the kinds of cases that you would deal with. What is, if we're going to hone in on some specific, what is the most common unnatural cause of death in, in South Africa or in, in your, you know, on your beat? I would say cause of death. I'd rather refer to circumstances because... Okay, sure. um, Circumstances often motor vehicle accidents. We see quite a lot of them in Johannesburg, I suppose, across the country. So thank goodness not everything is directed violence, but mm. definitely motor vehicle accidents, I would say, talking off the top of my head. And other common so circumstances? violent kind of causes of someone, someone's um, trying to kill someone, what's the Gunshot wound stabbings. We've seen quite a lot of gunshot wounds at the moment. It's mm. actually rife. Okay, because yeah. the, the, we 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 uh, we filmed with the crime scene cleanup folks um, who do, who have a franchise up here in mm. Joburg. They do the northern suburbs, and they were saying that um, that suicide and assassinations seem to be so yeah gunshot related circumstances. Yeah, so remember we don't necessarily um, know what the what mm. all the circumstances oh, are, and um, I think something that's always re important to remember is the fact that in South Africa despite what you see on television, the forensic pathologist doesn't make the call as to what the manner of death is. So is it a suicide, a homicide, um, accident, accident natural, um, if it gets to that point. Um, that determination is actually made by the inquest magistrate. But we are able to assist and say, yes, it fits with a suicide, or no, it doesn't fit with a suicide. Okay. So... Um, in terms of natural versus unnatural deaths, people should always remember that the fact that there is somebody to blame even um, doesn't negate the fact that it's an unnatural death. So even if there is nobody to blame, like in a suicide, it still remains an unnatural death. That person still requires a post-mortem examination, unfortunately. Okay. Now, um, we, uh, we were going to talk about personally why you got into that, into the field. But before we do that, could you just explain how you fit into the structure of law enforcement. So how does your office, where, or where you're based, fit into the bigger system? Okay. So we are actually supposed to function completely independently, which would make sense if you take into consideration that we sometimes have to comment on procedure-related deaths. So you, strictly speaking, don't want to really be aligned with anybody so that there can never be a conflict of interest. And also because like the cops could be the ones who shot the guy who yes. could have been a robber or not, who's now on your autopsy table. So if the cops are involved in the autopsy process. Correct. Yeah. Um, but at the moment, we are part of the Department of Health, or not at the moment, we are part of the Department of Health and um, functioning completely separately from the police. So um, Forensic Pathology Services is a department in the, in, as part of Department of Health. Um, and like I said, I work in the Gauteng 
took okay. all the employees of our health department. Where Correct. a couple of years ago, up until what, what, 20... 2007, I think, 2007. The, a lot of the staff, not the doctors, but the other staff, the people helping cutting, the Correct. people going to this crime scene to pick up the bodies on behalf of the Forensic Pathology Service, were actually police employees. Police officers, so that, that's right. And that was deemed, and I think quite rightly so, like, guys, you know, how can you say this is an independent thing? But because, meanwhile, yeah. yeah. So I think that it was, I think, a good decision that was made. Mm. And how many of you are there? In South Africa, at any given time, usually between 60 and 70 around forensic pathologists. Um, so that's people who've either done, the, the, you know, they're registered with the Health Professions Council as specialist forensic pathologists. Correct. 60 to 70 in the whole country. In the whole country. So if you go onto the HPCSA, the Health Professions Council website, you'll see there's quite a number more that's registered, but a lot of them have actually left the country or have retired. So, um, so that's 60 or 70 active ones. Yeah. And, and the majority would be employed by the government, so to speak? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So there's very few of us that do private work as well. Um, I'm in the fortunate position because I'm not a full-time employee anymore that I can do both. Mm. Um, then there are some people that only do private work, but most of the forensic pathologists are government employees. But mm. I mean, it makes perfect sense because mm. the law mandates who requires a, an autopsy. So. Mm. Yeah. Now, uh, of those 60, 70, can I say, how many would there be in, in a province like Gauteng? I've got no idea. Okay. okay. <laughs> and I just said, uh, one of the things, just as an aside, I have, a, I have a, a friend of mine whose wife is a doctor and, she's been, and she wants to specialize in pathology because she doesn't like um, having to deal with human live beings, with, with live patients, exactly. Um, and uh, he was saying to me that it's very difficult for her to get a post, that there's apparently should, there should be kind of nine pathologists. Now, I'm not sure what department or what area this is in, but uh, of the nine available posts that, you know, there's a r roughly that amount of posts that only two or three are filled and they're unable to fill the others due to resourcing. So it's like, a, you know, we... We met with the guys who do the police dogs, for example. Now, the police dog, there should be 300, a quota of 300 dogs working with the police at any one time. There's 100 at the moment. Mm -hmm. It's just that it seems that in a lot of the departments, I'm just curious, is there, is there an under, you know, is the pathology effort a little understaffed? Are yeah, you aware of posts, that? Are there vacant posts? I'm not yeah. aware of, the, of vacant posts. I think what's, what's a rather big problem with us is rather the fact that we bleed forensic pathologists, even... Our registrars start and they don't finish. Okay. So I think they are, look, it's, you're working not under great circumstances. You know that if you do forensic pathology, to a certain extent, you're going to be working for government for the rest of your life, yeah. unless you go private. And like I say, there's not a lot that, that makes a, you know, that makes a comfortable living doing that. Um, and the other thing is, you know, internationally, we are quite well liked. So, you know, yeah. often these people go overseas. I think when I started, we were three registrars. I'm the only one that finished in our department in any case. I can imagine that your typical pathologist in a, a couple of years in South Africa, it's kind of like being in the ER at like a Baragwanath hospital. Correct. That you are, you are coming out of a sh relatively short period compared to maybe pathologists in other parts of the world where you're exposed to just so much. I would imagine that people are, in, are, are snapped up if they're coming out of this environment. You know, um, we often laugh and say that it's the overseas guys that write the textbook. It's us that do the work and that see the, the numbers. Because, I mean, yeah. we just see massive amounts of everything. Um, 
the amount of trauma, I mean, just looking at Johannesburg, we are one of the larger mortuaries between Johannesburg, uh, Germiston, and then there's Dipcliff and Redipit. Those are the four main ones covering Johannesburg, with Germiston and Johannesburg being the largest. We're well over 3,000 bodies for the year, and we'll probably reach 4,000 before the mm. end of the year. And I think um, um, Germiston is sitting at... That's kind at, of the average, isn't it, as yeah. far as I recall? It's, it's a bit higher than it was before, I would say. But you know, it's difficult to just base it on one mm. year. And I mean, we are coming out of COVID. Germiston is sitting at very much the same figure. So I mean, that by itself, you're looking at 8,000 unnatural deaths per year. Um, so your pathologists are seeing a lot. Mm. What is a what, what is a typical day like for you? So um, one would actually get to work and um, receive your dockets for the day. So you are allocated probably around four bodies per day. Read through the dockets, make sure that you know what you're want, wanting to do. Um, prepare everything before going down into the physical mortuary, where you then spend whatever amount of time is required to do um, full post-mortem examinations with special investigations if required, um, I take my own photos as well. Um, afterwards, there's a lot of paperwork. You can imagine every mm. every case generates a report. Um, death, well, not really death certificates. Notification of death forms need to be completed. Special um, um, investigations need to be sent off. So a lot of that time is spent then doing paperwork, and then um, obviously we are also often required in court. Okay. So how long, if you how had, long say, would one bodies, autopsy take? Yeah, yeah. like if you say you got four or five. You start at what time, and what time would you normally be finished? And mm. then perhaps each individual one from there. You might correct me because I often have to phone you afterwards. Um, I usually started around eight thirty, and by eleven ish you're done. Maybe a bit before, but I often have students following me around, so that makes you a bit slower. And I think with age. Either age or experience, I've, and I, I think working in, in private as well, I've just seen what can go wrong, and it mm. seems like I, I just need to check every I and dot, every T. Mm. In the mortuary there in uh, Hilber, how many how many pathologists were, because it's one big space, and you all work together in the same space, so I imagine it fits three or four pathologists uh, in the morning? or There's in fact two autopsy suites which we use and the okay. one the large one which is probably the one that you saw there's three yes. people three pathologists working and then there's a separate one where another pathologist oh, works so, so we do four um okay so, four pathologists four, four, so you're doing 16 to 20 bodies a day yes. together yeah. Okay. yeah yeah look i mean if there's any um after hours work that come in we do do post-mortems up until six o'clock around about six o'clock at night should there be um People that, that needs to be autopsied immediately, that's usually for religious reasons mm. where the person needs to be buried the same day still. Um, those are then done afterwards. So or that's as soon as they come in. Muslim faith, uh, Jewish faith. Jewish as Anybody well. Anybody yes. else? Hindus? Hindus sometimes, okay. yes. So you do try to accommodate. I thought that's quite yes, nice. Absolutely. You know, that, 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 that effort is put there by government to, to accommodate those religious yeah. you know, beliefs yeah. for the family to you know, less traumatizing for them. Let's let's go back to the a question which has come up once or twice. What got you into this field personally? I, you, like Gerard said, it's not the it's Most not something common. that I think everyone wakes up and goes, "Wow, that would be that would fun. be a, that would be a fun career option." Yeah, exactly. But that's exactly what I did. <laughs> that would be fun. You're going to laugh now. You're talking about Quincy. I used to watch Quincy as a child and Murder She Wrote, <laughs> and um, it just intrigued me. And then. So I always thought I wanted to become a doctor. 
And looking at that, I think I'm quite, you know, I'm intrigued by things and curious by nature. And um, so I'd always, you know, I always wanted to know more and wanted to see more. And then I read one of Patricia Cornwell's books and it just gripped me. And I, it, it's like that penny dropped in that moment and I realized this is exactly what I want to do. Mm. So I actually did medicine she, in she order to... She writes about oh, so you, that, okay. that characters that Case, Case Scarpetta was a forensic pathologist. That's right. Okay, so those books by her, okay. Yeah, so she's got a full series and it's very well researched. Um, she actually worked... Um, in, I think it's, is it Virginia? Richmond, I think, in the medical mm. examiner's office. Um, and her work is very, look, I think it's very high tech. Some of the new books are way ahead of what we do. And I think some of them are, <laughs> aren't really possible to, 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 to replicate in South Africa or, or even elsewhere. But it's just this amazing character and she immediately pulled me into it. What academic path then did you did you personally take, and what what do you advise to young people who want to go into the profession these days? So after school, I finished medicine, so that's another six years. And um, look, then you have to finish your internship and then community service. Which when I when I did it was a year of community service and one year of internship. It's now two years of internship and one year of community service. Oh, okay. Yeah, and. Um, I think I was quite traumatized after my commissary year, I must be honest, it was just massively busy and there were a lot of things. So I started working in private first, but immediately realizing that, you know, this is not for me, I don't like seeing patients. And I assisted in theater for quite a few years, I think two and a half, three years, which was also lovely. I got a valuable experience that assisted me in how I approached autopsies, now how surgical skills, um, wonderful people that I met along the way. And when the post became available in forensic pathology, I then applied and got it. So, so had, you, had your intention when going to study medicine would be, this is where I want to end up as a forensic Correct. pathologist. So mm. you do your, obviously, your academics, your, your internship, your commissary, like you said. So those three years that thereafter that you were working this with helping with surgeries, was that waiting for an opportunity to come open? Or had you not quite decided that's really what you... Want to what you want to end up doing? No, I had decided, but you know, going back to study again, and you're not you're not 18 anymore is a different story. You know, you really have to make up your mind to do it, and suddenly it's not just yourself that you have to consider. Mm. So um, it, it took me a year or two just to settle again. And mm. I think the other thing was, like I said, I was doing commissary in a hospital that I think we had 74 beds or something, and the community which it served was 500,000. Incredibly politically active, saw a lot of trauma. I was just traumatized. Mm. I didn't want to work for government um, at that stage. And so it took me a, a bit of time to actually get back back there. So during that four years, which you are required to do, um, one year spent at anatomical pathology, which is um, the people that, this, they are also specialists, but they look at specimens from live patients. So, and sometimes from dead patients, but these are natural. If it's dead patients, it's natural, natural deaths. So those are the guys, if you have your appendix out, that they would actually look at the appendix. Or if you have a Cut biopsy, a mole, then, right, are, yeah. yeah, exactly that. So, so, so they're pathologists, and of course you're a forensic pathologist. Yes, they so, are anatomical or histopathologists. So there's a separate academic pathway. Correct. Um, there's a relation between the two, but yes. you are different things. Correct. The reason why we need to do anatomical pathology is in the cases that come to us to be able to recognize 
um, under the microscope what bronchopneumonia looks like or what this tumor is. Um, say, for example, in a person that died after a procedure or for whatever case. Um, so I spent a year there. And after that time, you can write your, your primary exam. So your primary or your part one exam is the, the first exam you write, these two to write. And that's basically focused on anatomical pathology, but with a forensic pathology slant. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're not going to go into all that much detail regarding specific tumors and things. Mm -hmm. um, and all the while you're working. Because it's, it's, when you say post, it, that is actually a, a post as a doctor in a forensic, specific path department. forensic pathology Correct. mortuary, for example, Correct. forensic mortuary. So you're actually working, already starting to do autopsies Correct. while you're actually learning how to do autopsies. So Correct. it's a working post. It's, it's not an like this training post. You're yes. not sitting for four years in, a, in an academic classroom and then you go off and do your practicals. You're actually learning on the job, so to speak, Correct. and in that process, writing your exams whenever it's the appropriate time. So it's yeah, it's so it's it's a it's it's not for example other people doing. A master where you kind of you go sit in the classroom it's it's a it's a living qualification absolutely or living training so to speak. yeah i started doing autopsies within weeks of starting there so um after i passed my primaries um i returned and then started studying for my finals well i actually started studying for my finals right from the start i used to whatever i saw on the table i went back and immediately studied whatever the case was so um, I then write, wrote my finals um, after three years, I think, just after three years. Um, but because it's a four-year rotation, I had to still finish my time. So I was basically a qualified forensic pathologist, but I couldn't yet be registered as one because I mm. still had time to do. And um, so at the end of, or middle of 2010, I was then um, appointed as a specialist forensic pathologist. At the moment, the HBCSA has changed the requirements. So now, so, so, so the exams I did, sorry, was through the Colleges of Medicine. So I'm one of the, um, I'm part of one of the colleges, which is the College for Forensic Pathologists. So at that stage, you could either do a master's in medicine degree through the university, because we are joint appointees between the university, whichever university you choose, I was at Wits and the Department of Health. So you could either follow the master's route where you do a dissertation and, ex and um, exam through the university, or you could do the Colleges of Medicine, which is what I did. And both end up at the same point. You Absolutely. are then at the Health Professions Council, a, forens a specialist forensic pathologist. It's just kind of two, two pathways. To get to both the same would place. work at the, at the forensic pathology mortuary. So could you have had a colleague who's working yes. with you as a registrar who's busy doing it via the college and another one is busy doing the, the, the qualification via the university? Is that Usually certain universities had gave preference to certain routes. Mm. So typically WITS used to do the college. Oh, okay. If I remember correctly, I think Pretoria used to favour the masters. Mm. But now it has changed. The HBCSA has actually changed their regulations and you have to do both. Oh, wow. So you have to do your college and then do your masters as well. But you're not then writing exams on stuff you've already written an exam for at the other place, so to speak, you know. You have, you'll, you'll do your academic masters exam and then you're going to do this a similar exam for the college. Is no, it not a bit I think of a... the masters is basically just the dissertation, so oh. you don't actually have to write exam for that oh, as okay. well. So it's a dissertation, right. it's a research project. Okay. Yeah. Sure. But either way, you've spent now how many years studying if you to become a forensic pathologist by oh that point? Oh, my goodness. Um, so it's the six years studying and another two doing conserve and another four. So that gives you 12 if you count the yeah. 
the two but, years in But you're getting paid while you're doing your specialization. Yes. So it's not as if, my God, you've got to find funding for four years no, to survive. No. You're getting paid. In your, that's why it's a post that has to come available. Correct. You did pay the university as well because you are a student at the university. Mm. But, I mean, you are... Um, Salaried person. Correct. Um, is the financial reward component something that also chases people away? How is, is it something you can make a reasonable living doing? Look, I don't think the salaries in government is ba- are bad, okay. but compared to what you could earn in private, um, yes. not specifically as a forensic pathologist, but in your other specialities, it's it's. So, like a cardiologist working private practice who's busy is going to be very successful well, financially, earning a lot more, more than a cardiologist successful. working for for government. But Correct. it's not a bad salary. I mean, it's not like I you're living you. in a hovel. You can no, afford to stay not. and drive a nice car. And yeah. Yes. What does working in the private sector as a pathologist mm. look like? Um, well, what I do is um, I'm involved quite a bit with cremations. So um, in terms of how that works is everybody that's cremated requires a certain number of, let's call them certificates, um, that are issued by sequential doctors in order to make sure that all the boxes are ticked. Because, I mean, once a person has been cremated, there's no going back. So if there's a suspicious, somebody raises a suspicion about that death later, it's, well, yeah, the body's been cremated. Yeah. There's, Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I'm quite involved with that. But what I also do, so you could either, the other thing you could do is to do private post-mortem examination. So these are natural deaths where the family just wants to know exactly what happened. Okay. okay. So, Not necessarily they suspect that it was dodgy. No. It's just you want more information on how the person Absolutely. Died. If they suspect it was dodgy, then it should the body should actually go to forensic pathology. Yes. But you can also be asked, even in a case where it's gunshot wound or stab in a strangulation, it goes to the government mortuary and an autopsy is done, you could be asked to be present by the family or do a second one later. Correct. Okay. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't do that myself. I wouldn't do that at Johannesburg because... The, you know, the first thing that will be raised in court is, but you do have a vested interest. You've yeah. got students at that place and you work there. Yeah. So I would do that at a different facility. We call that doing a watching brief. So you are present whilst a post-mortem is being conducted and you oversee, well, not oversee, but you see what the other person is doing. You can actually take your own samples and you write, most importantly, you write your own report. So that was, for example, I think in in, in Oscar Pistorius's case where Riva Steenkamp was shot, I think Dr. Reggie Peramol, a very well-known forensic pathologist who was private at that point, I think, yeah. um, watched the autopsy being done by, is it Prof. Skoltz? Or Prof. Whoever? Simon. Prof. Simon, sorry, who did that autopsy. That's the thing. He didn't, I don't think he wrote a report, but I think he just, he was present. He probably gave a report to the defense side okay. because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, your report is due to the to, yeah. Not to them, to the and that's, police. If we did, that's never become light of day, that particular report. Yes, <laughs> yeah. apparently. Yes. But let's not go down that whole um, avenue, yes. So, but that's yeah, an example of... Yeah. Yes. The other thing that I do quite quite a lot of is medical legal consultation work. So you are either presented with um, the post-mortem report that had been done a year or whatever ago. So these are not new bodies. Um where you then offer an opinion. Do I agree with the cause of death? What do I think could have happened here? Do I agree with what is being proposed? Can I offer my opinion? Do I think there's medical negligence? Um, So even sometimes on people that are not deceased, because we see such a lot of trauma, we are very well trained. And in fact, we train the medical students on trauma. So we do get involved sometimes in offering an opinion as to what caused this wound, do you know, could it be, uh, could be is it consistent with a strangulation or a Correct. or a punching someone in the face? Would this Correct. be possibly consistent with that or not? Because I mean, this comes into another aspect. It's, it's not only forensic pathologists. 
that do autopsies because yes. there's obviously so few of you in specific, I think it's in my experience from being in the police, smaller towns don't yes. have access to forensic pathologists. So you would get a, a person who could be a private practitioner even. Often. Or, or full-time employee of the state who's not a forensic pathologist, but they're doing essentially what you're doing and giving an autopsy report. And, and you can get some really good ones. I know there's some very old experienced ones who just couldn't have been bothered to go become specialists who do good jobs and some perhaps who do less good jobs. So might that be an example of where you might more likely be asked by the defense to say, look, we got this autopsy report. Can you just tell us whether it's a whether good one agree. or not? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the postmortems are actually done by what we call forensic medical officers. Like you say, some of them are full-time government employees working in, working in a mortuary all of the time. They are mm. full-time state employees. And sometimes, like you were saying, in the smaller towns, sometimes there are private practitioners that have an appointment after their work for the day has been done, they do one or two post-mortem examinations. I actually attended some of those when I was doing internship. Um, I guess that's not ideal, but it's kind no. of the reality of what we have in terms of the number of specialists. No, absolutely. If you look at the numbers of unnatural deaths in South Africa and the number of forensic pathologists, you've got to manage it somehow. Mm. So most post-mortems in this country are not being conducted, I would say, by, by specialists. But I suppose you could also say most babies aren't being delivered by specialist obstetricians. Ob yeah, I mean, because it's really impossible to have yeah. OBGYNs doing that. Um, it's a reality of the circumstances. Correct. Yeah. But it does open the door that, you know, somebody could look at that report afterwards. And like with anything else, I mean, you get good doctors, you get doctors that's not so good. You get good teachers, you get teachers that's also not at, you know, at standard. You get so, forensic pathologists arrested for selling human body parts. Absolutely. Um, you know, hey. <laughs> <laughs> That's very unfortunate, but true. that case one day. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, there can be a mix of good. Who are the... Who are the kind of big names in pathology in South Africa? Kind of who are or who are the people that you maybe looked up to as a uh, when you were coming up in the in the trade? Is there that reality? Are there kind of like is there the old prof who is just look? Obviously, the heads of departments have done their part, and they have so much experience. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely amazing. I was very privileged when I did my, did my final exam to have like a full bench of of professors which was amazing. Mm. Um, you feel quite intimidated, I must be honest. But in my case, I started working under Prof Schools, who's now um, retired, well, not retired, he he's, um, he's working in Singapore now, not as a forensic pathologist anymore. So I was his baby and the last one before he left. So he taught me a lot, you know, he stood next to me when I did my postmortems and I used to have to present all my cases to him and he sat there with a red pen that used to freak me out completely. It looked like it was just red scribbling all over the page. Um, and then whenever he went to a scene, I just tagged along. So that was a very valuable experience. And he had so much experience and he had a way of looking at things that really spoke to me. And then after him, Professor Janine Velema, which was just, she's like a walking dictionary. Mm. She's just absolutely amazing. She knows everything and her wisdom. Mm. I, I still phone her for, for advice. So those are the two. And two phenomenal big teachers. Ones. I mean, I know both Absolutely. of them that referred to myself over the years. And people who, they, they are educators as well as experts in what they do. You get a lot of people who are fantastic mm. what they do, but have, I have no interest or no aptitude to convey it to people. Correct. Um, and both of those people, I always, that's why we always, as police, when we wanted to take people to learn about autopsies, we mm. travel all the way from Pretoria to Johannesburg mm. because just the, the, the attitude in that department, which I think comes from the leadership, like Prof. Yes. Scholz and Prof. Velema, 
um, is one that we want to educate people. And please, we're, welcome, we're happy that you're here because we'd like to teach you about this, that you can do your job better, make our jobs uh, easier. I mean, I first met Prof. Skoltz, I think it was um, with the Lee Matthews autopsy. Yeah, he did that autopsy, right. yeah, you know, right. murdered by Donovan Woodley. So, you know, you know kind of legends in, in their own right. Now, now, all fair and well that, um, you know, these are two great examples of experts who have clearly handed on and passed on their knowledge. One of the things that comes up in our discussions fairly regularly, like with Gerard, the loss of Gerard's intelligence when it comes to you know his ex his specific no i mean in the in the knowledge knowledge the loss of the experience let me get yes i know i have a long-winded way of asking questions (laughs) let me cut to the chase so gerard leaves the police all of that experience evaporates with gerard gerard leaves with gerard is there a similar challenge in your field or is there, a, is there an appropriate passing on of the baton to the next generation? Yes, there is. In terms of, um, so in terms of the head of department on our side, there's basically two, the one is the position and the one is the post. So um, the academic head of department at the University of Witwatersrand is the one, and that's the position. And then the other one is the post of chief medical specialist. That's through the Department of Health. Um, so Professor Velema and, in fact, Professor Schools before her, Occupied both. Mm, so, hectic. Yeah, so after she resigned earlier in the year, the academic post has, um, Dr. Shakira Holland has taken over from Prof. Velema. So she's amazing and she's really running a great academic program. And I really think, I really think the, the baton has been passed on to somebody very mm. well experienced and um, a great pathologist. Um, the chief post hasn't been filled yet. So, that's so, so just to, to clarify for the listeners, the one is kind of running the academic program. What are we going to teach forensic pathologists in the four years that we've got? And them? the medical students and law and, yeah. students, wherever we are involved. Academically in involved. Academic. So that's a university yeah. position. That's right. And the other one is kind of like not, not running the mortuary, but your job is at the mortuary. Are the doctors doing their job properly? How many are cutting? And uh, overseeing all the mortuaries in the southern cluster yeah. of Hartford. So that's two huge jobs. And I think Absolutely. it's very good that they've separated it. Absolutely. It's massive involvement. But um, I do think there's carryover of the knowledge. And what's, you know, I phone both Professor Schools and Professor Velema still. Um, if I need advice, I phone either one of them to this day. Mm. And there's never a problem that they don't want to discuss a case, that you, they don't want to help you. Mm. Um, so there's definitely knowledge mm. to be gleaned and wisdom from them. Mm. And I try to do the same for whoever contacts me. Mm. My number's running around everywhere. So I think it's something that we owe, you know, paying it forward to other people. And I think just on a side note, Dr. Holland, for example, was very involved in the autopsies for the Moffat Park serial murderer, which I don't know if we've covered in our series or ever spoken about, which was a bunch of murders taking place in, obviously, the Moffat Park area um, a couple of years ago. So I think if I remember correctly, she actually did a master's degree on on that with with Mike. Mm. Well, plenty more to talk about. We'd like to talk about some cases and, you know, some interesting uh, experiences that you've had in the course of your career, as well as how you deal with, you know, I think for the average person, there's also some of those questions of, you know, how do you get over that hump initially of the gore, the kind of knowing that you're dealing with somebody that was a living, breathing family member to somebody? We'll talk about that. Um, subscribe to our page on YouTube at, at uh, Profiler Africa. Just search Profiler Africa. We're available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, 
Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, you name it. Um, simply search Profiler and you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Profiler Africa and join our Facebook group now. So today we are discussing um, forensic pathology with uh, one of my dear friends and forensic pathologist, Dr. Estelle von Staden, who is a senior forensic pathologist here in the Gauteng province, Department of Health, and works at the Johannesburg Medical Legal Mortuary, which is in Bromfontein, just behind Constitutional Court. Before we get into some of the, the some of your questions, John, I just wanted to ask, you know, what is it like getting over, you spoke a little bit about... Um, that first year and the kind of suffering trauma in that, quite a, it being quite a traumatic experience for you. Um, that's obviously a part of, of the journey into this profession, having to, A, get over the, uh, the, the fact that you're dealing with human bodies, but then the, just that, that realization that this is somebody's mother, friend, sister, you know, uncle, father. Uh, just, just talk to us a little bit about just kind of, how you cope, how you deal with that, what, you know. You know, my trauma is really rather related to my community service, definitely not with forensic pathology, which is sounding very weird. Sure. But forensic pathology hasn't really traumatized me. Um, I think it hasn't. Uh, I never battled starting looking at bodies. Um, I must be honest, I've at times looked at some of the bodies that we receive particularly the very mangled people, you know, somebody that was struck by a train or that ran across a highway, for example. And I remember one day thinking that we are seeing things that no person should ever see. But fortunately, I've always been able to compartmentalize, I suppose, to split my emotions from what I'm seeing in terms of, the, you know, I, I can, on a cerebral level, see that without a trauma, well, I don't know, yeah. I suppose we are to a certain extent traumatized, but without it affecting me yeah. um, particularly. Um, Gerard always moans about the smell. I'm incredibly <laughs> smell sensitive, but it doesn't, I don't want to say it doesn't bother me. I'm very aware of it. Mm. And um, at times, I, for example, like in Aldecar poisonings, it's got a very distinctive smell. And there's been times where I've stood next to a body without opening a single organ or even cutting into that body, and I realized this is Aldi carb. So my, my smell of sense is great. But I've, you know, even that, I've always been able to smell it and you know, tick the box mm. without um, you know, reacting viscerally to it. What does bother me are the maggots um, at yeah. times, and those aren't always present, fortunately, thank goodness. You know, these are really only in cases where the body has been severely decomposed and left for a long period of time. And even then dealing with that, I always think, I'm so sorry for the family of this deceased person to have had to see this body in this condition. So I think what to a large extent has carried me has been the fact that I think it's a privilege to be able to, to do what I do, to be able to give answers to people, 
to be the last voice for that deceased person and to actually help in the process of justice. So um, I never lose out of mind that, yes, it is somebody's mother, father, whatever. And in that way, I always think it's incredibly important to treat that body with the utmost respect. But it doesn't, you know, you can't stand next to the body and cry and go hysterical because you're not going to be able to do your job. Yeah, this ability to compartmentalize seems to be for folks involved across different disciplines mm. that are related to mm. law enforcement, etc. Gerard, for example, I often wonder how Gerard is able, you know, having dealt with, and we joke about it, that, you know, he's all just buries bodies in the garden to, you know, vents, <laughs> vents at home. Um, <laughs> but it is, it seems to be a common trait, whether you're speaking to a detective who's, you know, or a Gerard, um, this ability to be able to walk away from it at the end of the day and leave it at work and to be able to kind of separate these things a little to. bit seems to be the the trick if, if you've if you've got that inherent ability then you know it seems to be one of those things that helps you to to be kind of suited for these types of roles i don't think you could do it otherwise to be yeah. quite honest with you you mentioned the maggots just uh, who what other specialists would you collaborate with because i know i've been when we went to um the mortuary there in hillbrow it was to interview lawrence hill the entomologist yes. who's such a lovely chap yes, um so what heard. what other experts do you, what other you know who else do you collaborate with the likes of entomologists etc um in the course of your work yes yeah, so obviously you've met lawrence um then forensic anthropology very important you know sometimes we get bodies that's been reduced to bones mm. um, or even if you just want to have an opinion on a specific bone the forensic anthropologists are great they do amazing work and then um, forensic odontology although that's quite problematic you know we don't we don't really have somebody in the department that we can consult with but that's major ones um, then obviously forensic chemistry we've got Ildi at work who's an um, toxicologist and she's just amazing if you have to ask her anything she if she doesn't know she'll get the answer for you somehow so but those are the major ones sorry odontology please pardon my ignorance dentistry oh dentistry. i see <laughs> okay there we go um the then just facilities wise now that it's not an understatement to say that the facility there in Hillbrow is run down, um, dilapidated, and it's Indeed. and it. Now I am aware that there is another facility being made or being built um, in the Midrand area. No, in fact, or, in Auckland Park. Oh, in Auckland Very Park. Oh, is it in Auckland um, Park? Sorry. Yeah. Okay, so being built in Auckland Park. Excuse me. How? Tell us about the just the, the facilities. What? When? How is the facility in in Auckland Park going? Is it nearly ready or? Um. I'm not exactly sure. It okay. has been being. It's been in the process for a number of years now, um, and it should, as far as I know, it should have been ready a while back. But you know, then COVID happened, and sure. I think everything got delayed. the The building in Hillbrow is a problem by all means. It really is, and one can understand that they're not going to be spending millions on that building and repairing it, whilst a, a multi-million rand building is being built. Mm. Um, which we are all really looking forward to. I, yeah. I think, you know, what, being what able some, to make that move. Because you must kind of be, you must wish for the day that you can oh, be in a facility just with the, there must be technologies that you don't yes. have access to in the current facility that you kind of yearn for. <laughs> we are we are actually incredibly fortuitous. Um, we've, fortunate, sorry, we've actually got a low-dox scanner, which is a wonderful thing. It's a low-dose um, low radiation full body x-ray machine radio you know radiological 
phenomenon, really, what, that was actually initially um, developed in South Africa. So it allows us to scan our bodies in terms of, we usually do that for, for anything where there's projectiles um, being sought, look, looked for. So the gunshot wound bodies. Um, you know, when I started, we had a C-arm, which is an old-fashioned type of X-ray machine, to explain that properly. We used to have to wear um, lead aprons to make sure that you're not exposed to the... To so the, like if I would rights. go for a leg X-ray. Absolutely. Same kind of that same thing. Took forever... Um, and had to warm up and this and that and the following. And he really did, just didn't want to do anything mm. with it if he could have waited. And then we got the Lodox scanner and it works within a matter of minutes. And you have a beautiful image that you can work from. Because as funny as it might sound, bullets are funny things. They often end up in places where you wouldn't expect them. And especially in the pelvis and then the top part of the neck and the skull, you can sometimes search for them for very long. So that just makes it amazing that you can actually pinpoint much better where those bullets are so you know things like that we we have available okay but i would imagine that there's going to be some to some new toys to play with in the new I facility so. <laughs> <laughs> and just i think it's just a nice environment for you guys to work in yeah. i mean sure. i've been so i've seen a lot of more trees in south africa when i was in the police and none of them inspired me and impressed me oh. um in horrible conditions that you guys have to work under mm. some were a bit better some were not so great but i mean i once went when i was doing a homicide course with the los angeles sheriff's department in I think 2013 as part of that course, they took us to one of their mortuaries. <laughs> it's oh, like, no, you're just it's like brag. okay, I just don't want to even tell you what my pathologist back home have to work under. It's just, yeah. it's just that you know, you're not a single drop of blood touches the floor. Whereas in oh, South Africa, word. you know, you have fluids. What you know, there's water oh, on the in floor. Yeah. You know, you yeah. wash it down with the hose. It's and you just don't get that. Uh, yeah. So I really hope you guys that comes into effect because you really deserve it. Look, Professor yeah. Velma was very, very much involved with the design of the building and looking at what's available and what one what one can do. So I think it's, it will be magnificent, magnificent once we get there. Yeah. All right. Well, let's hope they can get that together soon, and let's yes, hope they, and then let's hope there's a good power, a good solid power supply to the building as well. I would imagine so. Probably have to be dealing with load shedding like the rest of us, um, Gerard. Yes. So, a couple of things that I wanted that I think the listeners would find interesting that I definitely found interesting. You know, if you watch again, watch American programs, the 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 the, the forensic pathology team or coroner's team, whatever you want to call it, goes out to the crime scene and examines the body in sight. Is that something that happens? How often? Why not? If not, etc. And perhaps some interesting tales you might have to tell about being called out to a scene. No, I think it's both of our bugbear, um, <laughs> which is exactly why you went there. Um, it is a problem. It's a major problem. Um, we are not called out to the scene as we should. Who, who would be the whose responsibility is it to say, pathologist, can you please come out to our scene? The the, the police officer on scene. Mm. It's their responsibility to decide. We need a pathologist here. We need the advice. We need the opinion. So at the, scene, yeah. at the scene. So often, what we are asked when we do get to the scene would be things like time of death. Do you think this is the primary crime scene? What type of weapon do you think we should mm. look for? Does this scene make sense if you look at the injuries that the person had sustained? Yeah, could, is this a suicide? Do you think this is maybe not? A, and that would obviously be relevant for the investigators from that moment on forward and Absolutely. how they're going to conduct their interviews and investigation. I mean, when I had just started, I was actually called to a scene with Professor Scholes once. 
where it was a natural death, but because of the condition of the body and the purging of body fluids, they were very concerned that it was an unnatural death and we could allay their fears right there and then and, you know, it was just immediately sorted out. But it doesn't happen. It, we are simply not called to the scene as often as we should. And on the other hand, and this is really going to get Gerard up and very excited, is the fact that the police officers don't come to us on, you know, and attend the post-mortem examinations. Mm, yeah. That's just as big a problem. Mm. Which you would think would be the easier option <laughs> because I would imagine if you're going out to scenes regularly, there's there's a backlog happening back at the no, office. No, but there's no? somebody on call. Okay. Yeah, there's, there's somebody on a person. Call. There's oh, a number that they all have yes. that they can say, this is the forensic pathologist on call. So there's nothing that's, nothing stopping them from just phoning that. Oh, that so person is there for that exact goal. So being on call is a good opportunity to pop to the movies for the afternoon or? <laughs> but, <laughs> like you know, out, chances are the, the detectives morning. aren't going to yeah. call, so I'm going to—I'll take yeah. the afternoon off and go hang by the pool or whatever. Yeah, look, I mean, I've been called out at funny hours of the day. How often then in a month would you be, or in a year, would you be called? Look, called I'm out? not doing—I'm not a full-time employee anymore, okay, so I'm not enough. doing that kind of thing anymore. But I mean, we used to be called out definitely more often than what I get the impression at the happens at the moment. Okay. Um, but even then, even when I started, it wasn't that often. Mm. And, and, and the aspect of cops coming to the autopsy, which, oh, which they're supposed to do, although if you speak to the crime scene guys or detectives, they'll tell you it's not their job to do that, bizarrely. I think it's like 1% of autopsies ever are attended by a member of the South African Police Service, which would be either the detective, ideally, because it's his, his or her case, or the crime scene person who was at the crime scene, the, the CSI person, or even IPID, if it's a police mm, it's a police, police who did the shooting, you know, IPID. It's it's almost never, I mean, it's like, like this should be seen 1% and 2% of think, autopsies. No, remember when Is we it, did the study, I think it was 0.85 or something. Got, yeah, so, and that's, right. I mean, you can have a child murders, rape murders, gun, massive gunshot, you know, they just don't pitch up. It really drives me. Is up. that laziness? Is it ignorance? Is it overworked? It's, I think it's a, co a combination of all of those. All of those. Um, I don't like the mochi, it smells bad. Maybe I'm going to get sick, that kind of thing. Well, then don't I investigate murders. I don't like seeing murders. dead bodies. That like, you know, don't be a detective who investigates murders then. <laughs> exactly. To, you know, it's not our job. It's the, the mortuary takes the samples or the, the exhibits and takes the photographs. It's not their job to do that. So it's yeah. partly misunderstanding, plus I think willfully not wanting to understand because sure. they don't feel it. And also like, oh, now I've got to spend three hours at an autopsy where I've got other things. So I think it's a mixture of a whole bunch of things. And, and also just bad management because detective commanders should be saying you should be at the autopsy right now. What the hell are you doing in the office? Yeah. So it's... A, yeah. Having said that, you know, it's always the same people attending. We do have officers attending. It's always the same people you see there. Totally. Well, this is kind of... If I, when I evaluate just the police in general, again, across all the discussions that we have, it's very much a story of pockets of excellence and then but a lot of 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 the opposite um but where the excellence exists it's the best the, these it's are the best practitioners in the world and it's well, so it's such on. a shame con such a sad contrast in the police yeah, i had a police officer with me yesterday and um one of the doctors with me remarked this is exactly the type of person you want this is the the example of a good police officer and it's the truth yeah if there's one of these cases he's always there yeah um Talking about cases, Jared, you were going to make you. Where, 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 what you've got some questions lined up. What's your next? Because we were going to get to some good examples of cases. Am I jumping the gun? Yeah, no, no. I mean, both my questions kind of relate to things yeah. you've done. So, firstly, yeah. I think it's just out of curiosity, have you ever had to autopsy someone you knew as a 
didn't necessarily know personally or, or, and or someone who you did actually have some personal knowledge of, if not necessarily directly knew that person? So in terms of having knowledge of, often sometimes the, the more well-known people, um, Lucky Doobie, for example, I was very green when I did his post-mortem examination. Mm. Um, there were some family members of government officials um, that I've done post-mortems on. But in terms of doing a post-mortem on somebody you know, it's something I try to avoid at all costs. Mm. It's, I, I don't think it's a good idea. I have done um, the autopsy of a friend of mine's fiancé. But it's not a person that I've, you know, it wasn't somebody that I knew, mm-hmm. but I, I knew you of know. him. Yeah. yeah. So that I've done and I felt comfortable doing that. Um, but as a rule, I try to avoid doing anybody too close to, to it's hard. It's not fair when I've asked you before, if I ever die unnaturally, please do my autopsy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you don't, you don't have to. It. You don't have to. I get it. I understand Rather why. don't die from unnatural <laughs> causes. You know, like DJs, you can put in requests, Jaron, maybe, you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it, it, I can imagine it's harder to compartment, you know, put it in the box yeah. if it's someone you know, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, the other thing, obviously, that leads on from that is, um, you know, any interesting cases that you want to comment on might be interesting because of who the autopsy was or might be interesting because of the, what happened to the person or, or what kind of cases do you find fascinating? Mm. You know, I think the one thing one should always remember is that people are very fascinated by this whole idea of a, high-profile case, but to that person that's died, to their family, this is, every single case is a high-profile case. You know, their world has just come to an end. And I think if you remember that, that that changes the whole playing field. Um, Funny enough, the cases that I do think are important are ones where you've had an unexpected outcome kind Mm. of thing. Um, From the autopsy, though. From the autopsy point of view, yes. I had a a gentleman, older gentleman, a few years ago, um, that was found, as often the history says, dead in the felt. But he was actually found unconscious and taken to hospital with some scrape marks on his face. And they scanned him and they came and um, they then, he, he died shortly thereafter, sent him to us. And I found that he actually had a stroke. Now, if you have a stroke, you're definitely not going to be concerned with covering your face when you fall. So you are bound to have a few injuries. Um, and that's exactly what I found. I made his cause of death something like consistent with cerebrovascular accident and a person with hypertension, if I remember correctly, signed it out as a natural death. So there weren't like defensive wounds no, on not his at arms, all. Uh, hands that you would see in a grappling sort of scenario? Not at all. Because, I mean, obviously we always have to, you know, have that at the back of your mind. Is this being presented as something which it is not? Um so great was my surprise. I was actually at my children's school when the phone rang and it was police officer. He said, they want you at court. And I said, but for what? And he said, it's for this case. And I said, why on earth do you want me there? And he said, the doctor at hospital said this was an assault. And I said, but it's crazy. This is a natural death. I signed out. And I actually said to him, well, then you call the doctor in hospital if you want him to testify because I'm not, you know, this is not an unnatural death. And then I decided, no, better I'd go. Just now they... You know, they had arrested somebody and charged that person with murder. As I got to court, he had a senior advocate there. It must have cost him an absolute fortune. The the, the prosecutor wasn't particularly pleased with me. She said I shouted at her, which I never do. I actually don't shout. But I was so disgusted. And I said, this is absolutely ridiculous. Have you read my report? Did you see that I said this is a natural death? And, I mean, the, the magistrate was flabbergasted. 
And what were, I want, I'm curious, you might not mm. know, because obviously you played a certain role, but what was the evidence that they had? Like, yeah. did someone see him assaulting this guy? Or what was the I reason to say, dude, you, we're arresting you and charging you for murder? I think he was just present at the time. I don't oh, know on sure. what grounds they arrested this man. And I was looking at him and I thought, this must have cost him an absolute fortune. The stress involved with that. Unfortunately, he was, um, you know, the charges were dropped and... But, you know, and I mean, a similar case, um, which was actually a case in which I testified for the defense, I was, um, it was private work that I did. I was called, well, I had actually been overseeing the post-mortem part of the, of the, the case for a long time, where a man was charged with the murder of his wife. They said he strangled him. And as I started going through the post-mortem report, which had been compiled and conducted by um, a medical officer, there were just major holes in this whole story. And from the start, I said, well, I don't agree. You have strangulation hadn't been proved. Now you are charging somebody with murder whilst you actually don't even have a cause of death. Mm. And um, it took me a few hours on the stand to, to bring across everything because strangulation is a very difficult diagnosis to make and there's very important concepts um, that needs to be explained. And one doesn't always realize that the legal professionals, including the presiding officer who was a judge in this case, are not medically trained. Mm. So they have a basic understanding of medicine. But if you start talking about something like an asphyxial death or so, you need to actually go mm. back to basics and explain it properly. And by the end of my testimony, the court came back and said they are changing the... Char they charged him with murder, which they didn't then changed to assault GBH, assault mm. with intent to do grievous bodily harm. And even on that charges, he was acquitted. Mm. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that really gives you a sense of you did something that helped somebody. And I think what's important here, what you're touching on, is that people always look at somebody who testifies for the defense as you're some scumbag who's trying to get the person oh, off. And you're being paid. I'm sure, I'm sure you get those. And don't, don't get me wrong. Or the lawyers that, you know, by hell and high water, they know the client's guilty, but they're going to try and get them off. Absolutely. But you also have to understand that in South Africa, sadly, for whatever reasons, the quality of police work and, like you say, sometimes the, the particular person who might have done that autopsy is not great. And the prosecutor is not of the standard that we would perhaps like them to be. And you, listening to this podcast, could be the person who's arrested That's for something. Issue. And you actually, and, and to, you really do have to have people on the other side to, it's that balance of, of things. Hmm. Um, so it is important that good quality people do sometimes end up having to testify for the defense um, with their honest opinion, uh, honest being the qualifying word there, because unfortunately we see work that's not great that's been done by the police, by autopsy people, by people doing the, the, the medical examinations on living victims, the J88 hmm. exams, and, hmm. and etc. And we need to call into question when people have done bad work. And that's just as important as the work that the police does, because if you allow bad work by the police, you know, a, a bad ballistics comparison or a bad DNA comparison to go through, well, next time, next time your it's family you, you that's arrested for yeah. something and charged for something that they might have done. I think the one thing is that that's always very important because I, you know, I've testified for both sides and you're actually not testifying for any side. You're actually testifying for the person mm. that can't testify for themselves anymore is if your testimony would be the same for either one of the two sides, then you know you're talking yeah, the truth. That's and what that is what you should to do. always you know, strive to do. Yeah. You shouldn't be swayed by who pays you. Yeah. But I, I mean, why would it... Uh, how, 
defense lawyers take the tack of trying to say that in some way you're not being objective, you're being... Well, you know, I just, whenever you're testifying, there's some element of that. Yeah. If you're testifying, being called by the prosecution, the defense might say, well, you work for the state. I've had that before. Okay. Uh, if you're called by the, the prosec- defense counsel, I'm sure you get prosecutors who are going to say, but you're just being paid to be here. It's unlike him, hey? Um, so you're gonna, I've had that from both mm-hmm. sides because I've also testified on, on both sides in my career, so far mostly for the prosecution. But I have, you know, since I've yeah, left the police, me. the majority of the time, it's, it's been called by defense people. So, and again, the keynote is, are you doing, is your outcome the same irrespective of who called you? And that's what a proper expert should be doing. And I tell that to lawyers when I get asked to, to look at a case. I got one now for recently for a guy who pled guilty to many rapes of women over a long period. And I said, sure, but you know, I just have to warn you that mm. my findings might not be in the favor of your client. Mm. And I'm bound as an expert, and they know this. I mean, it's not a surprise to them, but to give an honest yeah. opinion. And sometimes I don't hear back from those lawyers, and mm. that's great because I only want to work with people who say, Gerald, I just want you to give me your honest opinion. Yeah. Whatever it is for my client, we need to know what we're dealing with. And those are the lawyers I, I'm happy to, very happy to work with. Yeah. Um, and I've had it even when I was in the prosecution, they once called me and I had to say, look, I don't think this murder was premeditated. Now, in terms of sentencing, that's the difference between a life sentence and maybe 10 to 15 years. And I'd say, look, I just don't see elements that this was premeditated. Yeah. So you have to be honest. Otherwise, I mean, you're not an expert, in my opinion, if you're not going to be honest. No, I agree with you. Now, I've, I've had to testify, funny enough, within the same week, in the same court, between, uh, in front of the same magistrate and with the same prosecutor, once for the defense, once for the, for the prosecution. Okay. And when I get called to offer an opinion, my first words to whoever calls me is, you need to understand, I don't care who's paying my bill. I am going to give you my opinion. You can take it, you can leave it, but I'm not going to change it because of who's paying me. For sure. Deal with that. Yeah. Okay, well, good. Um, what about cases you guys have worked on together? Sure, we were thinking about that the other day. There was yeah. definitely one of a guy, security guard, who killed yeah, the little girl. Yeah, the little girl. We, we definitely, um, I mean, we, I've often asked you about your opinion. I've done some stuff since I've left the police. Mm. Recently, we had a shooting case, and I'll often yes. ask your opinion, although you weren't testifying in the case itself. You came along when, when I was interviewing the, the suspect. So, I actually went to the scene with you as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So it uh, was good to have your friend, the pathologist, uh, on standby. Let's talk a bit about a serial, you know, one of the, those types of cases that really do resonate with people, serial, you know, serial killers series. Um, is it, I'd like to know any any interesting um, serial cases you might have worked on, but if, if, if there's a series happening, do you want the same pathologist to be working on the cases as they come up. Do you know what I mean? Would that happen? Would you, would you go, okay, we've... Yeah. I think in the sense of, look, I know what this... If we think this is part of the same series, I know what the other cases, what happened in those other cases, I need to specifically perhaps look and see if that's happened here. There's a repetition of um, So that would be good. I would say yes. For me, though, I'd, you know... As long as it's a good, qualified, competent mm. pathologist doing it, that's my bigger concern. Okay. Um, and of course, if it was a series where, where my unit would be involved, then we would be at that autopsy and we would have been at the scene. And we would probably have called the pathologist to the scene because mm. that's what we used to do. Yes. So I think that would be more important that the pathologist was at the scene, the cops are at the autopsy, because then we're covering up any knowledge mm. gaps that might mm. be very important. Mm. And, and we could always tell the pathologist, listen, we think this is part of our series and we know the guy did this, that and the other in the past four Please cases. So can you specifically see whether it's present or not? Okay. I, I think that actually came across very nicely in Moffat Park, mm. where um, the postmortems were done, I think, by Shakira, by Dr. Holland. Dr. Holland yeah. 
Kevin Faree, I think Dr. Faree, um, I think Anna Marie Matias did one, and then I think Dr. Barsky is now passed on. I think, yeah. and but but that was serious. So there was a wide. I don't think more than one was done by the same person. Okay, and it's obviously and just it was, a logistics thing because you yeah. might have a doctor who's on leave that day when this body happens to be need to sure. be autopsied, or they they're not on duty, so they can't come to the scene. So the reality is, it's a luxury. Um, that you might not always have, but then it's absolutely important for the cops to be present at that autopsy and try and get that same pathologist to come out to the scene if they're on standby and mm -hmm. then do the autopsy thereafter. What I've done re often is if I'm involved in the allocation of cases and I see there's, for example, four bodies coming from the same scene, I'd often say give them all four to me because, you know, not very many people are willing to do four multiple shootings on a day, which one can understand. Mm. But I think there's value in having one doctor look at all four of those cases where they were physically coming from the same place at the same time, and you can correlate, you know, between the four different bodies. Um, it also makes it easier when you have to go to court because now suddenly you don't have four doctors leaving the facility um, either mm. sequentially or at the same time. You know, so it just makes it much easier. But my poor scribe and and the sectors didn't particularly appreciate doing four multiple shootings, the one after the others. <laughs> mm. um, but I do think there's value in doing something that yeah. way around. Do you ever come up? Have you ever come up against cases where it's you versus the perpetrator, where you you know somebody's clearly tried to cover up the actual cause of death or tried to kill somebody in a way that is not going to be easily interpreted or do you know what i mean attempting to evade mask what they've done yeah if we say yes now then we'll have to admit that they got away with it just have you picked up where this is staged where hang on this actually isn't what initially it came in looking like um whether a strangulation versus hanging versus something else I'm actually thinking, you know, I actually thought when you started speaking about where it's us against the perpetrator, I actually thought of that little girl where the guy actually started threatening everybody and anybody around him. I, I felt very threatened. Okay. Um, but I'm trying to think. You know, it's very difficult, actually, because most people think they know what to do, but they don't actually. It's, mm. it's, it's very yeah. intricate. You know, staging, for example, as we saw in the, the Jason Rueda case, staging a, a hanging or a strangulation as a hanging, it's not all that easy to mm. actually hang another person. It's something I often have to explain to people. Mm. It's, it's quite difficult to do that. Um, I'm sure if they had enough know-how, somebody would be able to do that. But, you know, we keep on searching for the answers. If you have a body, say, for example, somebody was injected with something and that person's lying before you and this person wanted to stage it as a natural death, if you don't find that perceived natural death, we would keep on searching, do a mm. histo, do a toxicology until we get to the answer. So mm. I'm sure... So there's nothing, oh, his heart just stopped. There would be a cause why the heart stopped. Absolutely. And you would be able to pick that up as a forensic pathologist. Yeah. Oh, he had this heart issue or condition or Correct. history would have said, oh, we knew he had a particular yeah. condition. Yeah. So I suppose the Dexters of the world are getting away with it and those bodies aren't actually coming across a, patholo a pathologist's table. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Buried at the bottom of a lake or something. Any other, any other high-profile in, or interesting cases that are that are noteworthy? Oh my word! Well, you mentioned Lucky Dubé as one that yes. was public, and you, I know you've spoken about that on on autopsy. The, on autopsy, and, and, and I'm uh, these, it in the book. As these well. bodies recently found in Johannesburg, for example, would you be involved oh, six, in cases like in cases like that? Yes. Oh, is that the name? No, That's a twenty-year-old's name. Yes. Yeah, I wasn't actually 
I walked past one of the bodies, which is probably the closest I got because okay. I was already um, allocated some other bodies on the day. Mm. So I saw one of the ladies there, but I wasn't involved in doing the postmortems. No, unfortunately. Now, now those were allegedly all quite decomposed. How does that affect your job as a pathologist to do an autopsy oh, decomposed it body? Makes, it makes it very difficult at times, and I don't want to give anybody any, you know, ideas. Yeah. Um, but it can make it really quite difficult because you lose evidence as the body decomposes. For example, mm. DNA is only available, or, or perpetrator's DNA, obviously the deceased's mm. DNA would remain there. But you might not be able to retrieve DNA as easily as, as you should have. Um, it also makes the autopsy to the person attending, like the police officer, and even to us, it's not particularly pleasant because there are certain smells and looks associated with decomposition, which is not nice. Yeah. But the other thing is the organs can become so, well, decomposed that you might actually struggle to see what you should. You, you can so the soft tissue is not reflecting what it would have on day one of Correct. That, if it was been a murder Correct. of some sort. For example, the brain completely liquefies over a period of days. So say you had a gunshot wound through the head. You, might, you will still see the, the defects in the skull, but you cannot, for example, properly track the wound through, mm. the, through the brain. I mean, it's not going to make much of a difference in terms of your mm. report, you will still be able to determine the cause of death in such a case. But, but like strangulations cases, and stabbing. Very difficult. Strangulation. Again, Moffat Park, some of the causes of death were unascertained mm. due to decomposition. As we had with Quarry. Um, yeah. Being a true crime um, watcher myself, I'm under the impression that um, a strangulation is identified by that. There's a little bone. That's Pine what always comes up fracture. into. Yeah, if that thing's broken, it's a strang. Is that like just for the movies? That that is kind of a given. <laughs> um, it's very important that you do what we call a bloodless dissection of the neck, which is something I'm busy describing in the book at the moment, Gerard, which you will still read and edit. Um, but the issue is that you need to really look at the separate layers in the neck. There's something called a Gordon-Prinsler phenomenon, which was, de which was described in South Africa, so, which is, I think, amazing. Um, mm. The issue is the bones in the neck aren't always fractured. There's the, the hyoid bone and the thyroid cartilage. And even if they are fractured, it's basically just an indication that there was trauma applied to the neck, force applied to the neck. So, for example, somebody in a motor vehicle accident where they are where the neck strikes an object or something strikes the neck, you could also find fractures of that nature. But if you see that, you know, obviously it raises questions. Um, but in a lot of the hangings, for example, you don't see fractures of the hyoid bone. Um, and even some strangulations, you don't necessarily see it. Is that because the, the pressure is higher up? The pressure might not be exactly over that point. In younger individuals, the bone is not yet... Um, completely calcified, so there's still a bit of cartilaginous tissue, um, there's mobility and elasticity. So there's different, different reasons why it, it might not fracture. I just have one, one more kind of major question, and that is kind of for the, for the pathology nerd that would have been with us for, through the whole discussion. And that is just, is there a process you go through with an autopsy? Do you, like where, where do you start? Where do you finish? Is there, I yeah, often say in court that you can wake me up in the middle of the night and ask me whether I cut the tongue of a body that I did 15 years ago, and I will say yes. Okay. Because you need to be able to be consistent and do yes. every single thing every single time. So what do you do? What is, where do you start? Where you do you finish? Get to the body and what, what So you yeah. get to the body and you start with the external appearance. So that's the first thing. You note the clothing. You note to see the, the gender, the race, the age, approximate. You do the length and the height. Um, is there any special identifying features on the body? What are the post-mortem changes, the regular changes that we see in the body that you should expect? 
and then you start noting all the injuries. Um, if they are present, I usually start, um, funny enough, like I said, I'm a, an absolute creature of habit. So I always start on the right foot, right leg, um, right arm, left, same way. Then I do the trunk, then I do the back, then I do the head. It might not be described in the report to that extent. And then if there are no special investigations, which I need to do myself, I will actually um, ask my dissectors to start dissecting the body. So the way it works is that these guys help us tremendously by removing the organs from the body, which we then inspect further in size, um, cut up whatever might be required. So, um, and those guys aren't doctors. They're just people who've had specialist training, or training. extra That's training right. to, how to do that. So That's they're like right. kind of normal people. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm also normal, but for that matter. Um, but yes, they are normal people, and they do that under your supervision. So you stand there, you, you have an eye over them, because you are doing four bodies at the same time. Whilst I'm continuing with the next body's external appearance, they might be removing okay. the organs for me. So thereafter, you would actually receive a tray with all these organs and dissect them. Um, dissect. I remember prof schools always used to tell me, if there's a hole, you put a scissors in it and you open it. So you open absolutely every, everything. <coughs> Um, and then you have to examine the body cavities because sometimes there's fractures which you might not have seen before. You need to yeah. make sure that you've covered everything. So okay. that's basically the process. And then you could be then taking blood for alcohol testing. So the blood is taken before we start. <coughs> and samples for DNA and whatever. Samples for DNA, samples for toxicology, which is often um, blood again, stomach fluid, um, stomach contents. For example, if you get fluid. poison that you suspect, then Correct. you want them to test that for that. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So, and and if that sounds, I know I know we've kind of covered uh, a trajectory on how somebody would would come into the field. If that sounds like it's up your alley as a listener, what would you advise to be? You're a young student. You're in you're in matric. You're finishing your schooling. What would you suggest is the best possible path to pursue to get to to your role? Look, they would have to finish medicine first. And, and I think the advantage of that is you also get to see other areas because yes. I think you get yes. people who have like naive ideas of what it's like. And I think it's like on TV. And yeah. you might realize, actually, wow, I'm fascinated by cardiology. Um, so I think you've got that, that six years. You need years, that grounding. And yeah. I think at the end of the six years, you want to do forensic pathology. It's probably a that's safe a bet that's story. really what you want to do. And sure. remember, during the course of training, they, they rotate through forensic pathology. So they are exposed to us. They are exposed to the work. They come to the mortuary. Um, so if they still want to do it, you know, then you know you probably have a, a keeper. And still okay. some you say don't finish. I think you no. said three of the started with you. You were three, were three and you're the only one I'm who finished. I'm the only one that finished. Not, yeah. not only just continues to work in the field. The only no. And even from the pathologists that's finished, they, they, they move. They, mm. We lose them. Mm. Well, yeah. guys, it's been a fascinating conversation. Do you have one, like a, a final question there, Gerard? Not a final question, but, you know, as I said, it's... I know your dedication to this work, and I want to thank you for all these cases that you've autopsied over the years and helped bring justice <laughs> mm -hmm. in a way that often you don't, you know, don't. Get, it's one of the people that often don't get acknowledged for their yeah. role in this because you don't necessarily even testify, and no. even then, nobody's saying thank you very much, <laughs> except not. the presiding officer when you get up the winter stand will say thank you for your time and you're yes. excused. Um, so it's a really thankless job, and we're very happy that people with your level of experience. To, I mean, I was if something happened to one of my family members, I really hope that someone like you would be there to do the autopsy. That at least mm. I know that little aspect is Cover. taken care of yeah. properly. So thanks. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And thank you so much for joining us um, and taking the time out, just sparing some time to talk with me and Gerard. Um, you mentioned a book. Um, 
want our book where our book when can people because people love love our love what's you called? know book, books oh are God, a big part of our conversation <laughs> yeah when what is the trajectory for your book when can people expect to be coming along to the launch um hosted by gerard oh my word um, <laughs> <laughs> so the book is out next year we're probably looking at the second half of next year i still have a few months before i need to submit the manuscript oh. i'm furiously working on that that's what the december holidays will be all about um, the name is still up in the air, so so if you have any ideas, I would love it to hear Which can't be autopsy because someone no. else wrote a book with that name. <laughs> That's so right. Have to be so we need to think of something else. And funny enough, it's being written in English, not in Afrikaans, which is my first language. Okay. But it's actually a bit easier for writing in mm. English for me. You know, I've always worked okay. in English. And funny enough, doing autopsy, now I'm, now I'm going off the track, no. but doing the TV series Autopsy, which is in Afrikaans, yeah. proved quite difficult having to speak Afrikaans. Um, which, like I say, is obviously my first language and which I'm very comfortable in. But, you know, having to present your work in the Techn language which you don't usually language, do, yeah. it's, it was quite daunting. Mm. But the book is in English. It, it, um, if I remember correctly, we are translating into Afrikaans mm. as well. Great. So, yeah. That's and we'll story. definitely announce on our show yeah, when we we'll. hear that it's out. And, uh, Thank you. Absolutely. Maybe you can come back when the book is when the book is being launched and we can have a conversation about the book specifically yeah, and some you. of the specific subject matter that uh, finds its way into the book. Mm. Yeah. Fantastic. Great. Thank you, Estelle. Thank you, Jared, as so always. Um, guys, uh, please visit our YouTube page and subscribe. Search Profiler Africa. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Simply search Profiler. Please share your favorite link. You can engage with us on our social media pages. Our Twitter and Instagram handle is at Profiler Africa. Please also join the group on Facebook. Um, thank you very much, as always, for listening. Uh, we'll be back again with another episode of Profiler next week. So look out for that. And um, yeah, guys, thank you so much for um, such a, an interesting conversation. And hopefully, if, if it sparked some interest, maybe there are some future pathologists out there listening. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, we'll catch you again next time.